Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Dr. Jeffrey A. Robinson and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Fast Thinking Scene 1. Bank Robbery Daniel Blake waited outside the downtown branch of the First National Bank of Hawthorne and tried to look innocuous as he checked his watch. How did it come to this, he thought. I finished grad school and had a great job in pharmaceutical research. We stayed in business through the pandemic, but still cut the lab's budget and laid everyone off except for the scientist in charge, Dr. Hastings. After a year of unsuccessfully trying to find a job, and with massive school loan debts hanging over his head, he had no choice but to investigate other ways of making money. Daniel checked the video feed on his cell phone. They're on schedule, he thought. Studying the activities of the employees inside, he checked his watch and noted that it would soon be time to begin. The video transmitted from inside the bank was transmitted by a tiny Wi-Fi camera that he had installed in the bank last week. It was high on a wall by the entrance, but no one had noticed it since it was painted the color of the wall. After days of studying the bank, he had discovered that, before they opened, the bank manager loaded up the cash drawers for all the tellers, bringing stacks of money from the vault on a very small metal cart. Same routine every day he thought. Daniel watched and waited until the bank manager exited the vault with a money cart and approached the first teller location to be stocked. Reaching out, Daniel placed a small explosive device on the bank entrance door. Then he slapped his left bicep and ducked behind a pillar outside as the breaching charge detonated. Time seemed to slow down for Daniel. The explosion went off, but the fragments from the blast seemed to lazily float past him in the air. He then hurried around the pillar and ran into the cloud of smoke that obscured the doorway. Running, however, was difficult. Indeed, it seemed as though he were pushing his way through water. The air was thick and slow. The guards had been completely disoriented by the blast and didn't even seem to notice him as he hurried past them. They too seemed to be moving in slow motion carefully placing each step in front of the other. He had to be careful. This next part was going to be tricky. As he approached the first teller window, he crouched and leapt, vaulting just high enough to clear the counter. Physical control is difficult when moving so fast, he reminded himself. The laws of physics and the reality of momentum remain unchanged. I need to stop without hurting myself. Catching the edge of the counter to slow himself, he came to a full stop just in front of the car full of money. But he felt the strain on his arm as he came to a stop. It wouldn't be good to dislocate a shoulder, he thought. I need to be fast, but not too fast. Glancing to one side, he noted that everyone was still cowering from the explosion. In fact, most of the people around him hadn't even noticed him yet. His satchel was open, and he reached out and pulled the bundled stacks of hundreds and twenties into the bag. He emptied the entire cart as a few bills slowly fluttered to the ground. Then he stood and turned, 
It had been only a few seconds since he'd breached the bank door. By now, everyone probably realized that something was wrong, though few had realized that this was a robbery. Those nearby now stared at him, but they looked like they were paralyzed with shock and disbelief. A wave of cold started to sweep across his arms and legs, and he felt time starting to resume its normal rate of flow. Time to go, he thought. Slapping his forearm, he was instantly rewarded with a spreading sensation of warmth, as time once again slowed to a crawl. As he started to jump back over the counter, he yanked a small cylinder from a Velcro tab on his belt and threw it toward the center of the bank lobby, where two guards were slowly reaching for their weapons. He cleared the countertop as the flashbang detonated, instantly disabling the nearby guards who fell slowly to the ground. Fortunately, his earplugs and special glasses made him impervious to the blast. Without any interference, Daniel exited the bank and he ran down the sidewalk outside, easily weaving through the pedestrians in his path. He didn't get far, however, before time around him seemed to speed up and slowly resume its normal flow. <laughs> wow, he thought, gasping for breath. That was a rough one. Tearing off his mask and the hoodie, he loaded the bag of money on the back of a motorcycle and hid it beneath a colorful cover so that it looked like a stack of pizzas that were being delivered. Pulling on a hat with a local pizza parlor, he started the bike and disappeared into nearby street traffic. Scene 2. At the police station. Dr. Warren Hastings stood in the office of Detective Jamal Malyar from the Criminal Investigation Division of the Hawthorne Police Department. Hastings watched silently as the detective finished playing the security tapes from the morning robbery at the First National Bank. As the video stopped, Hastings nodded and said, Well, detective, I have to agree with you and your team. It does indeed look like someone's using our new drug to commit crimes in your jurisdiction. I assume this isn't the first time something like this has occurred. That's right, said Detective Maliar. This is the fourth time this guy has struck, and each time he gets better. But we haven't ID'd him yet. No prints, no DNA. Whoever he is, he's smart, careful, and fast. His first hit was a smash-and-grab at a high-end jeweler. He made off with more than $25,000 of gems, but must have found the goods difficult to fence because he changed his target. His next attack was at a large business, and he hit them as they were moving payroll. He got 40 k that time, but he changed his targets again. His last two jobs have both been at banks, and he's managed to clear more than 75 k each time. Still, his M.O. in all four cases is pretty unique. He moves like grease lightning and is in and out before people even get to respond. The last time, the entire crime was over in less than 20 seconds. So tell me, Doc, what's the deal with this drug you say he's using? Does it really give him super speed? Hastings sighed. No, it doesn't make him faster, though his reflexes and reaction times are greatly enhanced. The drug was developed two years ago and is only now undergoing testing and trials. It is called Superchiasmatic Polypeptide 4B, or SCPP-4B. We call it SKIP. It induces a cognitive state known as accelerated attention. The user's awareness is sped up dramatically, and from their perspective, time seems to slow down. 
Nothing really changes except the person's awareness. They process information so quickly that the world around them seems slower. The effect only lasts for a short time, about 10 to 12 seconds at the most. But for that time, the user's perception of time is from 10 to 20 times faster than normal. You've probably experienced a situation like during an accident, when time seemed to slow down. Well, that's what's happening here. Skip is a neurotransmitter that induces that accelerated state. Well, the street name for this drug's QuickTime, said the detective, and we're starting to see more of it. Really? That's a surprise. All doses of the drug are tracked and accounted for, and the manufacturing process is quite complex. I find it difficult to believe anyone else could make it. Well, trust me, it's out there. This particular guy has struck four times in the past six weeks. But we've had three other heists this week, so access to it has expanded. Were the other robberies like this one? Asked Hastings. Mm, yes and no, answered the detective. The thieves moved crazy fast in all the other robberies, but only this guy has been successful. He appears to know what he's doing, more so than the other new guys. The perps of the first two attempted robberies overestimated how long the drug would last, and they got themselves trapped in each bank's vault when the quick time wore off. The third hurt himself running into a doorway. I guess moving while in that accelerated state is tricky. He knocked himself out when he ran too fast to stop. Did they say where they got the drug? They all said they bought it off a guy who demonstrated it for him. Each dose cost $3,000, and each group said they purchased more than a dozen doses. Well, said Hastings, the drug's quite dangerous. It can be deadly if used improperly. In fact, it's still only experimental and is being tested for possible use by the DHS and the DOD. It's proven remarkably effective for specifically trained teams of combat specialists, SWAT teams, and anti-terrorist units. In carefully controlled tests, these teams can accelerate their awareness and breach a room, access a threat, and take out the hostile elements before the targets can respond or fire their weapons. The results have been nothing less than spectacular. The DoD is considering using it for fighter pilots and special forces teams. Well, that's all great, but we now have criminals using it in our city. Yes, that's troublesome, said Hastings. But I can't imagine how anyone could have gotten the drug. Could someone else have figured out how to make it? I doubt it, said Hastings. But I guess that must be what's happened. Gesturing toward the video monitor, Detective Maliar said, Tell me, why does this guy keep slapping his arms? Ah, that's how the drug is administered. It's called a slap patch. It's a method developed to administer medicine transdermally through the skin. The patch consists of hundreds of tiny metal needles, each less than a millimeter in length, and is as thin as a human hair. Each needle contains a tiny amount of the drug, and the array of spines is covered with a thin layer of plastic. The patch sticks to the skin, and when struck, the needles penetrate the cover, enter the skin, and inject the neurotransmitter. The effect is virtually instantaneous. Any idea of how many doses of this drug might be on the streets? asked the detective. I have no idea at all. There shouldn't be any. Well, when we first contacted you, we only had one suspect. Now, however, we've got a handful of decoys and copycats. 
Do you think there's any way our police could get some of this stuff? <laughs> Absolutely not, said Hastings. It's not supposed to be public knowledge, and you probably shouldn't even know about it. You can ask the DHS or DOD for some if you want, but I seriously doubt they'd make any available to you. Hmm, that's unfortunate, replied Malyar. It's going to make this situation even harder to control. Scene 3. Captivity Dr. Hastings woke up handcuffed to a metal chair. Shaking his head groggily, he looked around and tested his restraints. Searching his surroundings, he discovered that he was in the back of a large, empty van. The windows had been opaqued, and the light outside was dimmed, as if they were in covered parking somewhere. Ah, said a voice behind him. You're finally awake. I wasn't sure how long the chloroform would last, and was beginning to worry that I had used too much. What? stammered the doctor. Where am I? How did I get here? Craning his neck, he managed to turn enough to see someone sitting behind him. The figure was dressed in nondescript dark clothing and sat patiently in another chair, his identity obscured by a motorcycle helmet that completely covered his face. <laughs> so many questions, replied the man. Where are you? You're here with me, but only for a short time. How did you get here? I waited for you in the parking lot where you work and chloroformed you as you got into your car. Please don't worry. I don't intend to harm you. I simply want some medical advice. But why? What do you mean? Asked Hastings. His abductor remained silent for a moment, but finally replied, If you think about it for a moment, doctor, I'm sure you can figure it out. Hastings shook his head to clear it, and he realized what the answers to his questions must be. Shit, he thought. This must be him. This is the guy from the police videos. You're the bank robber the police told me about yesterday. You're the one who's been using Skip. That's correct, but everyone calls it QuickTime now. It's becoming quite popular. Hastings grunted, pulling against his restraints. And you say you want some medical advice from me? I assume that means you're starting to experience some side effects of the drug. Sadly, that's true. I've started having strange symptoms. I'm not sure what they mean. I was hoping you'd explain. It means that you've taken too much of the drug. You've probably noticed that it's taking more and more of the drug to generate the accelerated awareness it produces. But after repeated use, other symptoms also emerge. Care to tell me what you've been experiencing? Well, said the masked man, first, I realized that even after the time acceleration was over, my mind seemed to process things faster. I don't really mean that I think faster, it's just that... I found that I made connections and associations more easily. It's like I started noticing things I never did before. For a short time after each use of the drug, I felt the way they describe Sherlock Holmes, you know, the way he saw everything and linked everything together. But the sensation wears off after a while, and that ability fades and disappears as if I were waking from a dream. That makes sense, said Hastings. And let me guess, you're experiencing déjà vu more frequently as well? <laughs> That's right. So these are side effects of the drug? Uh-huh. You see, 
The drug accelerates several different processes in the brain. Awareness and attention are just two of them. We didn't realize that when we first developed the drug, but we've since found out that when the portion of the brain that controls attention returns to normal speed, other parts of the brain remain accelerated for a short time. For instance, the parts of the subconscious that process information continue operating at a greater speed. The region of the brain that makes associations between different pieces of information keeps working faster. For a short time, you really do process information like Sherlock Holmes. The brain also becomes more intuitive, and you get hunches and premonitions more frequently, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I didn't know if it was real. Oh, it's real. But it's also temporary. The heightened activity of the subconscious mind results in mm, 30 to 40% boost in IQ. that lasts for about an hour. Unfortunately, it's followed by a rebound effect when the drug completely wears off. Then the brain slows down and intelligence is greatly reduced for about 24 hours. Nothing is free. There's always a price for everything. Yeah, I've noticed that too. It gets hard to think. It's like my head is full of cotton. But that's not the worst side effect, added Hastings. Frequent use of the drug causes a plaque-like buildup in the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the hypothalamus at the base of the brain. That's where awareness and the brain's sense of time are regulated. If you keep increasing that dosage that you take, permanent brain damage will result. What kind of damage? Well, the man who first discovered the neurotransmitter and who was the first person to synthesize it was a fellow named Professor Cedric Bailey. He experimented extensively on himself, thinking he'd discovered a way to dramatically increase innate intelligence and memory. But he didn't stop when side effects appeared. So what happened to him? He eventually suffered a stroke and had to be institutionalized. He lost the ability to speak or walk and never recovered. To this day, he remains in a long-term care facility where attendants feed him by hand and change his diapers like an infant. If you don't stop, you'll share that same fate. So what's the maximum safe dosage? Asked his abductor. We've set a safety limit at 10 doses. No individual is allowed to use the drug more often than that. But I'll bet, though, you've used the drug at least twice that many times. I have to warn you, it's addictive, and you'll underestimate the adverse effects until it's too late. Is there a way to reverse the effects? None that we know of, other than to stop using it altogether. Given enough time, the side effects fade, but if the brain is damaged first, well, there are some things that just don't heal. You need to stop, or you'll end up like Bailey. The helmeted man remained silent for a few minutes, while Hastings continued to test the strength of his handcuffs. Well, said the dark-clad man, thank you for your medical advice, your candor, and your valuable information. I'll consider your recommendations. The man stood and added, I guess this concludes our conversation. As I promised, I mean you no harm, and I'll return you to your car momentarily. At that point, Dr. Hastings felt the man reach around and cover his face with a damp cloth 
that had a cloyingly sweet odor. As he struggled futilely, his vision grew black and his awareness faded. Scene 4. The Hospital As Daniel was escorted to the long-term care wing of the Lakeview Nursing Home, he marveled at how easy everything seemed to be when he took quick time. Even though he had to increase the concentration of the neurotransmitter, it made his thought processes so much clearer. Applying the intelligence boost that he got from QuickTime, it had been trivially easy to confirm the information he had gotten from Dr. Hastings. It had been almost as simple to obtain fake IDs, so he could pose as John, the nephew of Professor Bailey. He had a few suspicions of his own about the potential side effects of the drug that he wanted to confirm for himself, but wanted to see Dr. Bailey's condition for himself as well. At the end of a very long corridor lined with dozens of private rooms, Daniel finally reached a large open room, much like a solarium, where patients waited patiently and passively in wheelchairs. Patients were scattered across the large room, most of them sitting quietly by themselves. His escort, an older nurse with white hair and a gentle smile, approached a gentleman in a chair that faced a large window. Professor Bailey? She called gently. I have a very special guest for you today. You have a visitor. It's your nephew, John. The old man twitched his head in Daniel's direction and mumbled something as the nurse carefully turned his wheelchair to face the nearby chair where she had directed Daniel to sit. The man muttered a word, followed by an inarticulate syllable, and his hand fluttered as if he were trying to raise it out of his lap. Quickly assessing Dr. Bailey, Daniel thought, Poor soul, maybe I shouldn't have come. The nurse whispered softly to Daniel, Please be gentle with him. He gets quite frustrated when he tries to communicate. I'm not sure how much he'll understand about what you say, but in cases like these, your tone is far more important than actual words. My guess is that he'll be quite excited. I think you're only the third or fourth visitor that he's had in all the time he's been here. Please, take as much time as you want. With that, she smiled and left. Daniel turned to the professor, who indeed seemed quite agitated. The professor tried to speak, but all that came out was a soft stream of word fragments and syllables. Despite the patient's apparent incoherence, Daniel proceeded to introduce himself and explain why he had come. Bailey's eyes grew wide, and his efforts to speak increased, but Daniel could make no sense of what he might be trying to say. After long minutes, Bailey became increasingly agitated, and Daniel was afraid the nurse might come over and instruct him to leave. Just as he was considering leaving, Daniel thought, well, this is a long shot, but I'll give it a try anyway. Then, Daniel gently slapped his upper bicep and activated the quick time patch that he had attached under his shirt sleeve. As his awareness accelerated, so too did his intuitive abilities, and Daniel realized what the problem was. Professor Bailey had indeed suffered a stroke, but it had only been a very minor one. The patient's real problem was that his thought processes had been permanently accelerated, and that his brain raced so quickly that it outpaced his ability to speak. Even his capacity to move had been compromised, because his brain would send too many signals to his muscles too quickly, and all that resulted 
were palsied movements that reinforced the illusion of a stroke. With his heightened awareness, Daniel also understood that the sounds Bailey was making were snippets and excerpts of his attempts to speak. Imagine what one would hear if you said something, but only every fourth or fifth syllable made it out of your lips. Fortunately, even after Daniel's accelerated awareness from the quick time wore off, his heightened intuitive abilities and intelligence allowed him to interpolate what those missing syllables must be. You can really understand me? asked Bailey, though the sounds he uttered were hardly more than you, Lee, and... Daniel nodded. Yes, I've taken the drugs, so I'll be able to follow what you say, if only for a little while. Thank God, said Bailey. You can't imagine what it's like being trapped like this. I can't begin to imagine, said Daniel. But I'm surprised no one else has figured this out. A tear appeared in the corner of Bailey's eye. No one took the time. They only see what they expect, and for me, they just see a stroke victim. True, said Daniel. Without the drug, I wouldn't have figured it out either. So you've taken the drug too? Asked Bailey. How many times? I've taken it about 30 times now, and as you can see, I'm fine. No, you're not. The very fact that you can talk to me this way means that your mind's been changed radically. Each time you use it, you rewire it more, and you'll eventually damage your hypothalamus. Nodding, Daniel said, Yes, with some sort of plaque buildup that's irreversible. But it's not replied Bailey. I've had a lot of time to think about that problem. In fact, trapped like this, that's all I can do. In any case, I've come to the conclusion that the plaque is caused by the byproducts of the drug when it is consumed in the brain. The resultant chemicals accumulate and eventually cause brain damage. However, the plaque can be removed. The residual buildup should be reversible by administering chelation compounds intravenously through your arm. It would likely take days to remove all the plaque. After that, however, a treatment for an hour or two each use of the drug would mitigate further buildup. You mean the drug can be stabilized and made safe? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. That's good to know. But I only have a few more doses left. They're all that's left of the supplies I took with me when they shut down the pharmaceutical lab. My last assigned task was to destroy all the stock that we had on hand. I didn't, though. I took all the slap patches and forged the documents that certified their destruction. No one ever knew, or even suspected, that I took them all. I sold some of them for cash, and I used most of the rest. I used the drugs to make enough money to pay off my school loans. I don't know how to make any more and I was saving the last few doses for one last job I have planned. After it's done, I'll be out of patches anyway. But I'll score millions, and I won't ever need them again anyway. Then Bailey surprised Daniel. But you don't have to make the drug from scratch. You can extract it directly from cerebrospinal fluid, the liquid that surrounds the brain and the spinal column. You can then concentrate it and use it. That's how we first tested the neurotransmitter. The method is described in my notes, 
hidden somewhere wherever they finally put my personal effects. All you need to do is drain some spinal fluid from people and perform a simple distillation process. Do you mean I can make more? Yes, you just need to obtain enough spinal fluid from people to make more doses. Daniel blinked in surprise. Thanks, I'll try that out, and I'll test out that treatment too. If it works, I'll come back and give you the same treatment. No, please don't. The brain damage I suffered isn't reversible. All I want to do is die. The three years that I've been here seem like decades. If you come back, promise me that you'll kill me. I don't want to live like this anymore. Daniel reached out and gently touched Professor Bailey's hand. I promise, he said. They continued to talk for another 20 minutes before the lingering effects of quick time finally faded. Then, Daniel lost his intuitive abilities and he couldn't understand the professor anymore. After a while, Daniel said goodbye and left the professor alone in the solarium as the old man gently cried in his wheelchair. Scene 5, DHS Medical Research Center. Weeks passed, during which the police periodically checked with Dr. Hastings about more crimes that had been likely committed using the drug. Quick time. After reviewing CCTV recordings of several heists, Hastings confirmed that the crimes probably were executed using the drug. The detective, however, concluded that all the burglaries and thefts had been done by the copycats that had purchased the drugs from the original robber. Strangely, however, the original bank robber never reappeared. Eventually, the crimes stopped. Either they had run out of doses or all been caught by the police. For a while, Hastings forgot about the robberies. At least, until Hastings discovered a news report about an armored truck heist. According to the report, nearly a half ton of gold bars had been stolen, right out from under the not-so-watchful eyes of the security guards driving the truck. They never even knew that they had been hit, until they reached their destination and discovered that they were missing $32 million of gold bullion. The guards claimed that they had never even stopped after picking up the gold, except for about two minutes at an accident at an intersection near the pickup point, and no one could have moved that much gold so quickly. Hastings read the online article about the theft and wondered if it could have been done by his mysterious thief. The police didn't think that it was related. After all, the quick-time robber, as they had come to call him, had hit only banks. Still. Hastings wondered. As he finished reading the news article about the armored truck theft, he stumbled across a completely unrelated story about an old colleague of his. The piece reported that Dr. Cecil Bailey had died at the Lakeview Nursing Home late Sunday evening. Strangely, the cause of death was listed as intracranial hypotension, an almost complete lack of spinal fluid. Normally, a complete loss of CSF resulted from a traumatic brain or spinal injury, but doctors were baffled because no such damage had occurred. A final note mentioned that the CDC was investigating whether the patient had been exposed to a new form of meningitis that had only been found in Africa. Dr. Hastings paused as he read the second article. Something seemed naggingly familiar to him when he thought about quick time, the gold heist, and the mention of cerebrospinal fluid, but he failed to make a connection between the two articles, and soon 
forgot about both incidents. Thank you for listening. You may notice it's becoming easier and easier to interact with us and support the show. We love our listeners, fans, and patrons. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and anybody who might be a sci-fi buff. We know they'll love it. And if you'd like to support the show for about one cup of coffee a month, you can go to the link on the bottom of the show notes in every episode and find a support this podcast link. We value bringing original, high-quality short stories to you every month And we appreciate your support to keep this podcast ad-free. Thank you so much and have a great day.